Welcome to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. My name is John Kiriakou, and I am here in the studio with my co-host, Michelle Witte. Get ready to go against the grain. I'm actually worried that we're not going to have enough time in two hours to go over all of the things that we want to go over today. There is so much in the news. First, We are going to talk about the big story. The big story, of course, is the release from a Russian prison of former WNBA star Brittany Griner and the release from a U.S. prison of Russian arms dealer Victor Boot. The releases are the result, apparently, of extended negotiations, but they don't seem to pretend additional releases. We'll go into some depth on that. I will say that was great news to walk into today, this morning, to walk into the office. Very happy to hear it on both sides. Uh, we're going to well, talk. Well, I mean, I'm happy for Victor Boot and his family. Listen, when I was at the CIA, Victor Boot was enemy number one. Mm-hmm. And we tracked that son of a gun to the four corners of the earth. Mm-hmm. They finally got him in 2010. Um, but he got something like 35 years or 30 years or something. It was ridiculous. And he's already done 12. I mean, that's a that's a sure. serious All prison right. yep. sentence. So. I'm with you. I'm with you, so, John. God bless. Um, we're going to talk about the political chaos that is reigning right now in Peru. Listen, yeah, I don't boy. know anything about Peru. I really don't. But this story is so fascinating. I didn't know until this morning that Peru has had six presidents in the last four and a half years and that their political system is in such a state of chaos right now that the political parties have all broken up. So there aren't even any parties. Hmm. Yeah, it's just nuts. It's like everybody's going nuts in the parliament. And then at the same time, trying to figure out how to manage this country. I mean, this is the aftermath of uh, decades of rule by Fujimori. Decades. And interestingly enough, the president who was arrested yesterday uh, is in the same wing of the same jail as Fujimori. Well, isn't it also his daughter is uh, one of the, you know, the drivers of what what. Pedro Castillo's supporter call a legislative coup. That's right. And what his, of course, she and her detractors say was an attempted coup on his part by right. then dissol- attempting to dissolve the Congress before they could vote on it. Right. So, you know, so again, it's, it's, you know. Just as an analogy, um, my oldest uh, sons used to love uh, fake wrestling, WWE wrestling. And I took them to Madison Square Garden once to see wrestling. And it was very confusing to me. And I said to my oldest son, so who's the good guy? And he said, there is no good guy. They're all bad. That's what we're seeing now in Peru. I will say a decade in power. Yeah. A Alberta decade. Yeah. 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 There's no good guy down there. We're going to talk about that. The FTX scandal continues to worsen. It's mm-hmm. not just about money anymore. Congress is now involved. And Sam Bankman Freed, whom people are now referring to as Sam Bankman Fraud, who has never read a book and is apparently proud of the fact, um, has hired... Ghislaine Maxwell's criminal defense attorney. So best of luck with that. Uh, There has been ongoing speculation as to whether he's going to be subpoenaed. Right. To appear before uh, House Financial Services Committee doesn't. It's on the table as of a couple hours ago um, if he doesn't choose to testify. And there's been like really too cute back and forths on Twitter between Maxine Waters, the chair of that committee and Bankman Freed, Maxine Waters saying, we've heard you give interviews on the topic. And so we'd love for you to come in and tell Uh us exactly what happened so we can understand it. And Bankman Freed will respond by saying, well, 
in fact, I'm still studying the situation. Right. And so when my knowledge is full and complete, I would be delighted. And then, you know, right. Maxine going, well, given what it's just like, stop yeah. it. Stop. This is we ju- said last very week, he precious. Needs to shut his I mouth. can't take it. This is serious stuff. Uh-huh. Like teachers have their pensions in this stuff. That's Ugh. right. It's That's just right. like yeah, everyone being cute online. I'm sick of it. You know, one of the one of the things about this situation with Sam Bankman Freed, and I'm sure it's something that that his attorneys are going to try to address is he's being subpoenaed to testify before the House committee without immunity. Mm-hmm. Now, if he can negotiate immunity, he can just confess to everything he wants. How on earth? Why would he be able to negotiate immunity? Well, How would that happen? other people have done it. Now, the, the lesson that the House learned was with uh, Oliver North. They gave Oliver North immunity and he told the truth in a series of nationally televised uh, uh, hearings. And so then when the justice said, oh, well, we're going to charge him with these several felonies, making a false statement, conspiracy, blah, blah, blah. He said, no, you can't use any of that. I had immunity. And it went all the way up to the Supreme Court and he won. Well, what's well, yeah, that's what immunity means, right? Right. Well, the thing is, if Congress wants to get to the bottom of this or they want their own headlines, they're going to have to give him something. Otherwise, he's going to go before this committee. I don't know. And he's going to plead the fifth to every single question. And then nobody's happy. I'm going to say Oliver North, it makes some sense to give him immunity because you're hoping that he's going to implicate more sure. powerful people. Sure. Right. And it's maybe worth it. Right. Sam Bigman fried is at the head of this. Yeah. So unless you are hoping that Sam Bigman fried is somehow going to implicate uh, yeah, you Wall know, the Street likes of wicks. like Jamie Dimon yeah, exactly. or the head of BlackRock or the head of the World Economic Forum, you know, which I don't think is likely, partly because those people are very powerful. Very. And again, I'm not suggesting that they helped set this up, but like there's nowhere higher for it to go. He should be responsible. Which if he is wasn't, why, it was negligence. Which is why he should have kept his big mouth shut from the very beginning. Yeah. 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 I, everyone's addicted to being cute. It's true. Uh, There's a lot going on in Riyadh today. Chinese President Xi Jinping is in Riyadh for what is beginning so far as a love fest between these two countries. This is his first visit to the kingdom in seven years. A quick look at things leads many of us to believe that the very fundamentals of U.S.-Saudi relations are changing, perhaps permanently. As Saudi relations with China continue to improve, we're going to try to get down into the weeds on this. NPR talked about this this morning. Did they? It's very funny. Uh, they're like, yeah, uh, the well, they're sort of contrasting the U.S. relationship with Saudi Arabia with the Chinese relationship with Saudi Arabia. But they kind of can't decide which is good because right. first they say, well, you know, China's relationship. Uh, with Saudi Arabia has always been very transactional, whereas in the yes. past, U.S. U.S. leaders have personal relationships with Saudi it's leaders. The special relationship, the special relationship, but that has sort of changed with Joe Biden and MBS. So you know, it's like deep personal relationship versus bad transactional relationship. But then it's the 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 next point they make is this is also you know this is a meeting between two authoritarian authoritarian states. So safe to say, human rights isn't going to be on the table. So it's like oh well, so it's good to. Have have a personal relationship with one of the worst human rights violators right. in the world. Right. It, like, what did all of our bring to the table do? See. It's just very, it's just really funny. Crazy as it might sound, too. Immediately before this well-publicized attack on an electrical substation in Moore County, North Carolina, it turns out there were four lesser-known attacks 
on electrical substations in the states of Oregon and Washington. State officials in both of those states say that they're working with the FBI. The government is still stopping short of calling these attacks um, acts of domestic terrorism. But, you know, I'm hearkening back again to 2013 and this attack on an electrical substation in San Jose that's never been solved, that the FBI said was a a case of domestic terrorism. Um, It shows you that as a country, we are terribly vulnerable to an attack on the electrical grid. Mm -hmm. And the rest of the world is watching this. So we're going to have to figure something out here, some way to protect the electrical grids or crack down hard on the people who are doing these. Yeah, I'm also sure I'm in favor of protecting sensitive infrastructure for for a variety of reasons. But I do think uh, occasions like this are always uh, occasions to remember that the reason terrible things aren't happening all the time is not because we live in, you know, that, that everything is behind steel walls. Right. That's right. It's because people yes. mostly don't want to hurt That's other people right. willfully. You know what I mean? And I think sometimes you can, you can get this idea that we live in a world where everyone is out to get you all the time and everyone's potentially dangerous and everyone should be viewed with suspicion. And it's just, you know, it's just not the case. We walk around and bump shoulders with each other all day long. And, you know, most people are not out to get you. Yeah, I just feel like that's right. I like a reminder of that now and then. Honestly, I think the FBI has its work cut out for it right now because it's not like electrical substations in the country are surrounded by surveillance cameras or anything. Yeah. So very best of luck. You know, I, I saw. You think maybe they would be. You you would think. I saw something. I think it was in the Washington Post today. It had to have been because we're boycotting the New York Times. Yeah. Uh, today. No click on the New York which, Times. Which we'll they're they're walking out. The newsroom's walking out. Yeah. But um, it said that they found um, dozens of spent uh, shell casings outside the, uh, the substation in uh, Moore County. You know, most of the time when, when they find. Uh, these spent shell casings, there are thumbprints on them because as you're loading them into the gun, you're, you're, you're pushing them in with your thumb. And most criminals are idiots and they don't think that they should, you know, be wearing gloves as they're loading their guns. And so, uh, uh, that's how they're able to identify people in many cases. We'll We'll see. We'll see. We'll see. Kind of interesting. More interesting though, is the fact that a Republican congressman from the state of Florida has been indicted on six federal felony charges of wire fraud, mail fraud, and money laundering, uh, he apparently, well, he allegedly committed these frauds by obtaining or attempting to obtain $150,000 worth of COVID-related small business loans. Now, that's an easy accusation to throw at people, but if you look at the actual complaint, Congressman Joe Harding went to the trouble of using dormant bank accounts. He doctored up, allegedly, phony uh, bank statements based on these dormant accounts. He used LLCs that he had had in the past that had also gone dormant, claimed to have employees that he needed to pay during COVID, took the 150 grand and put it in his pocket. Amazing. I mean, this is a program. We we brought this up the other day. I think it was the Washington Post that had yet another dive into fraud and yeah. uh, COVID relief. But it was, you know, it, it was set up from the start to be oh my God, very yeah. easy for there was people no with the inclination and the means to uh-huh. exploit. 
And as the um, this article detailed, you know, it, it the, the people who they hired to sort of administrate it were incentivized at every turn to just get cash out. Oh, in, yeah. Uh, be, they would make they were incentivized to make big loans as quickly as possible. That's right. Right. That's and right. Again, Keep this is not to say up. inevitably when there is relief, there is fraud. Right. This is how yeah. it's going to be. This is just like, well, hey, maybe if you just if you gave that relief to individuals. Right. If you gave that relief to individuals first and then had a more uh, thoughtful and methodical program for keeping businesses afloat, we wouldn't be in this mess where people got you know, individuals got next to nothing. Small businesses that don't have huge, you know, accounting departments and connections and whatever couldn't quite figure out how to navigate this, this uh-huh. system and struggled. And everybody who already had tons of money just made tons more because that's what they're in the business of financial fraud anyway. Yes. You know, agreed. But no, you can't ever just give things directly to people. Right. So you have to just create a create a system where half yes. of the money goes to <laughs> goes to fraudsters, some of whom might be in the U.S. government. I would be so honestly, I'd be surprised if he's the only one you can make these allegations about. But we'll see. Oh, I think this is the tip of the iceberg. There's also some additional very interesting political news that nobody is reporting except for one college friend of mine who runs an obscure website called politics one dot com. All right. He's an aide to Governor Hogan in Maryland. He does this on the side, but his sources are absolutely impeccable. He says that U.S. Representative Vern Buchanan, who's a Republican from Florida, just reelected, is seeking to become the House Ways and Means Committee chairman. Ways and Means is the committee in Congress that or in the House that is in charge of tax law and tax policy. But... Buchanan says that if he is not selected to be the chair, he quits. What? He's going to quit. <laughs> and there's going to have to be a special election, which would then reduce the Republican majority by one in a House of Representatives that is so closely divided that they're not even going to be able to choose a speaker on I January the 3rd. Uh, all politics should be like this. <laughs> <laughs> I also wanted to raise this uh, Theranos uh, situation. Yeah, I, I noticed this earlier. Yeah. I just I just think maybe it's kind of crap that uh, Sonny Balwani was sentenced to more time than yeah. Elizabeth Holmes for his role in this yeah. uh, in this fraud. He wasn't the CEO. No, I he mean, wasn't. I'm sure he had, you know, his, his hands were all over it. I'm yeah, sure he was, he you know what I mean? In. He wasn't right. innocent. No. But like the idea that he's getting more time than she is, I feel is is probably not correct. When you raised this with me, I was thinking, well, let's think about um, uh, how they add on time uh, to to the sentencing guidelines. Uh, if you if you take responsibility for your actions, um, that's not an addition onto time. But neither one of them took responsibility for their actions. So I went through it. Um, you know, point by point, they're they're equally guilty. Yeah. And and I don't think the prosecutors even asked for more time for him than they did for Elizabeth Holmes. So I don't know. Seems what do I know? Shady. It just shows you what, what judges do. You know, judges are humans, too. Yeah, so yeah. they oftentimes make mistakes. Uh, we we can do uh, Absolutely. Uh, you know we what? It's 1215. A- we should probably we should probably welcome our first guest. Yeah. Um, our first guest is Dan Kovalik, former WNBA star. I said a moment ago, Brittany Griner was released from a Russian prison this morning in a pr- 
excuse me, in a prisoner exchange that saw convicted Russian arms dealer Victor Boot be released from a communications management unit at the Supermax prison in Marion, Illinois, and sent home to Russia. The releases come after prolonged negotiations between U.S. and Russian governments, but several other prisoners on both sides will have to wait for their releases. There was a lot of excitement in Lima, Peru. At least I'm excited by what, what's been <laughs> happening <laughs> in Lima, Peru, just because no. it's so much fun to watch. This excitement very quickly devolved first into a constitutional crisis, then into a coup attempt, and then into the arrest of the president himself. Now, former president Pedro Castillo has been, um, had been fighting with parliament all week over allegations of corruption. Yesterday morning, with an impeachment vote looming, he tried to dissolve parliament to prevent that vote from happening, and he called for a convention to rewrite the Constitution to keep him in power. Parliament was having none of that yesterday, and 101 members of the 130-member parliament voted in favor of impeachment and removal. Castillo then called on the military to help him retain his position. Military leaders refused to get involved, to their credit. By midday, Castillo was under arrest and charged with rebellion. And yesterday evening, Vice President Dina Boluarte was sworn in as Peru's first female president and the country's sixth president in the last four and a half years. That all sounds fascinating. But today, there are rumblings that there may have been some outside influences on these events. I'm going to ask Dan about that. Former Argentine president and current vice president Cristina Fernandez de Kirchner was sentenced yesterday to six years in prison for corruption. Kirchner won't go to prison because her position as vice president gives her temporary immunity. And I think there's a law that says you can't imprison somebody over the age of 70. Yeah, and she's just about 70. Um, she said she's going to appeal. Argentina's former minister of public works Argentina's former director of national roads and a Kirchner family friend were also sentenced to prison. This is all the same scandal about money that was supposed to be used to build roads and either the roads went nowhere, the roads weren't finished, or the roads were never constructed in the first place. Okay, Dan Kovalik is a labor lawyer. He's a human rights activist. He's a prolific author. His latest book is called Cancel This Book, The Progressive Case Against Cancel Culture. Dan, it's always a pleasure to have you. Welcome back. Thanks for having me. And welcome back from Russia, by the way. I'm going to ask you about that trip in yeah, a, in a few minutes. Let's begin, Dan, with the mutual release of Brittany Griner uh, and, uh, and Victor Boot. This is a result of long negotiations that finally, finally came to fruition. But it could have been, <clears throat> sorry, you know, I'm trying to deal with this cough that I've had for the last, what, eight weeks or nine weeks, and it's harder than it seems. Okay, so this is a result of long negotiations that finally came to fruition, but it could have been bigger. Why do you think that American Paul Whelan and Russian Colonel Vadim Kresikov, who's in a German prison, weren't included in this deal? Well... I think, first of all, that Brittany Griner has the big name recognition. I think that she was the priority. I think, you know, Biden gets some big political points for getting her back here before Christmas. I think uh, Paul right. Whelan before doesn't Christmas. have the name uh, that she has. So my guess is he wasn't as high of a priority. I mean, I think, you know, that's how politics works. 
And then, of course, someone sitting in Germany, obviously, that brings in another party, the yeah. German government. Yeah. And, um, you know, things are not, you know, the relations between the West and Russia are not good. And no. so my guess is getting this deal uh, at all was kind of a small miracle. So and again, I think they, they, they from the U.S. point of view anyway, they prioritized someone who's going to get Biden the best uh, publicity. And then from the Russian side, they've been trying to get a uh, boot out of uh, uh, back to Russia for a long time. So yeah. he was a high priority for them. So I guess they, they dealt with the two people they uh, valued the most. Yes. What it comes down to. Yeah, it kind of seems that way. I think that's probably uh, what happened. I mean, yeah, there is a, another. I'm delighted that Brittany Griner is coming yeah, yeah. back. Yeah, very really happy. happy about very it. Very happy. And um, I don't really care one way or the other about Victor Boot. The guy's been in prison for 12 years. So if they want to send him back to Russia, like I said, God bless. Yeah. But Good the, for him. The parallel, right? Because Paul Whelan is not accused. Paul Whelan's accused of spying, right? Right. The parallel is this uh, fellow named Mark Fogel who right. was arrested at an airport in Moscow. I think perhaps the same airport in uh, 2021 and accused of the same crime, which again, he doesn't deny both of them to, you know, he thought he brought in uh, slightly more yeah. uh, marijuana than Brittany Griner, like about half an ounce. I think according to Washington post story, I read about it. Uh, yeah. And just, it was, it was prescribed. It was medical marijuana. He thought that he wouldn't get caught. He did get caught and then was, uh, you know, thought that, you know, he loved, he was in Russia for a long time. He really liked Russia. He thought that, uh, that might, you know, uh, make things work out better. And instead, yeah. I think he was sentenced to 14 years in prison. And his family right. is, you know, they're now saying, like, we're glad for we're glad Brittany Grinder's coming home. We really hope this makes people think about our, you know, our family member as well. Yes. And maybe we could get some negotiations uh, for for his release. Yes. But, you know, again, it does uh, it does help to be. In the spotlight. And we were talking this morning uh, in our editorial meeting that uh, about the fact that the United States and Russia don't have a prisoner exchange treaty like like so many countries have. You know, if you're a Brit, let's say, and you get arrested for drugs in Thailand or India or, you know, wherever, Japan, um, you'll do a year or two and then you'll be transferred back to your home country to to finish your sentence there. No such agreement exists between the United States and Russia. Go ahead, Dan. Your thoughts? Yeah, yeah. well, that's not surprising, no. again, given how bad the relations between the U.S. and Russia are and have been for quite some time. Mm -hmm. It's not surprising we don't have such an agreement. And I also think that, you know, both sides use these prisoners as leverage, oh, yes. you know, for different things. So why make some agreement? on sending people automatically back when you can get something out of it for sending someone back. So I think that's I think that's probably what's going on. Here. I think you're probably right. The media are reporting that these negotiations were difficult and drawn out, which leads me to believe that this is a one shot deal. There won't be any more releases in the near term. Is there any reason why negotiations shouldn't continue in your view? It's the American side that reportedly doesn't want to continue on with these negotiations or to negotiate a common agreement that I mentioned a second ago that the nationals of each country should then serve their their prison terms in their respective national prisons. Why? Why is that? Why does the United States have that position? Well, you mean that they don't want to negotiate yeah. or they're, they're they're slow to negotiate? Well, I mean, I think uh, because they have a very adversarial relationship with Russia. I mean, and I think it's, by the way, a very one way thing. I don't think Russia has the same animosity towards the U.S., but the U.S. really doesn't want to deal with Russia. 
doesn't want to make deals with Russia and doesn't want to see us caving into Russia yeah. on anything either. You know, um, even talking to Putin is, has become the third rail of American politics. You can't even meet with the guy, right? Which is absurd, right? This wasn't even true during Soviet times, right? There, yeah. All the presidents had direct lines with the premier of the Soviet Union and for good reason. And as you, you, know, you ask the question, is there any reason we shouldn't be negotiating? And I would say, no, we should be negotiating with Russia. We should always be negotiating and talking with Russia. It's an important country. It's another nuclear power. And if you can have discussions and agreements on smaller issues like prison swaps, it can lead to discussions on bigger issues. Yeah, that that's exactly like right. Nuclear disarmament. You Amen. know, so, I mean, that's how things go. And I, you know, I think it's a shame that the U.S. again for some time has decided it doesn't want to talk to Russia. And when Trump, during the Trump administration, when he did want to talk to Putin, he was greatly criticized for it. Right. Um, it's just crazy. I mean, that view is insane. Um, so, again, this is we. This is a new era. We did not see this during the Soviet times. No, um, no. Obviously, Kennedy and Khrushchev had a decent relationship and were able to settle the Cuban Missile Crisis within days. Yes. Right. Uh, Reagan and Gorbachev were very close. I think diplomacy is important, and, and I think sadly the U.S. has generally given up on diplomacy. With everyone. I mean, basically, we, we've not put the energy and resources in diplomacy that we have in the war. And so guess what? We go to war and we don't have diplomacy. Yeah, that started during the George W. Bush administration. I was still at the CIA at the time, and I remember people saying that they had never seen an administration work so hard to not talk to our adversaries as the Bush State Department. It, it, it was a question of of, you know, bombing first and then forcing countries to the negotiating table rather than to engage in diplomacy to to head off hostilities. And it's it's like every administration since then has carried on that policy. Yeah, it's very strange. I was just thinking about this yesterday, you know, and listening to some analysts talking about the fact that it's really the State Department that is much more belligerent towards Russia than even the Defense Department. I mean, that's bizarre, right? I mean, you're, the State Department is your diplomatic department. Yes. They're the ones who should want good relations or at least open relations, open discussions with countries like Russia. And it's the Defense Department that you think would have a more vested interest yes. in wanting to stir up uh, conflict. And yet it's the opposite way around. The that's State right. Department has eschewed diplomacy entirely. And it's just absolutely bizarre. I don't understand it. And, and then turning to Peru, Dan, yesterday, yesterday's events were, were quite dramatic. The country has had six presidents in the last four and a half years, and the most recent is now under arrest. He's being held in the same prison as an earlier troubled president, Alberto Fujimori. Peru's political parties are in disarray. Most of them have fallen apart. Like literally. And the new president, Dina Boluarte, isn't even a member of a political party. Can you explain to us what the political situation is in Peru? How did they get here? Well, I mean, I think at least dealing with this particular president, uh, Castillo, I mean, he he had troubles as soon as he was elected. He's considered a pretty uh, far left wing candidate. I don't think that's true, but I mean. Uh, when you look at the spectrum of things in the world, he's considered pretty left wing. And, and so the ruling elite was never happy with him being president. 
they were confronting him very early on. And I, you know, what I, I view happened was a coup against him uh, yeah. by a very unpopular Congress, by the way. I think they have a less than 15, one five percent approval rating. And uh, so I think that this was a coup, you know, and he tried to dissolve them essentially before they deposed him and then he was deposed anyway. And there's a lot of protest, by the way, today against this. I mean, I think he's more popular than the Congress that that deposed him. But, you know, you certainly have a, a situation where their democratic institutions are simply not working. You know, I mean, it's it's a failed state, I think it's fair to say. It seems and where way. they go from here, who knows? Um, but it's it's very disconcerting. You, met, you, you mentioned Fujimori, who who was a criminal. Yeah, you know, he was a he, criminal. He, yeah, he created he, he he carried out a reign of terror on his own people. Yes, he right? did. And so, and that wasn't so long ago. And so, you know, when you when you come after that, it's not surprising that you don't have democratic institutions, right, that are working because he he destroyed those, um, and he continues to have a lot of influence in Peru. And, and um, there's some evidence that the Fujimori supporters were behind this coup. Uh, and, I, and Raytheon as well, apparently, strangely, has taken some credit for it as well. So, Geez, you know, it, it, along these, these same lines, I read a number of reports yesterday saying that the election of Boluarte is exactly what the United States wanted to happen in Peru. I even saw assertions that Boluarte is exactly the person that the CIA wanted to see in power there. I don't know anything about Peru. That's why I'm asking you. Uh, Boluarte, though, comes from the same poverty-stricken highlands that Castillo comes from. She has the support of the country's lower classes. She's not a member of a political party. Can you help me understand these accusations? Why would people on the left say that Boluarte is the CIA's candidate? In Peru, well, I think you raise a good question. Uh, you know, I think the fact she doesn't have a party makes her more susceptible to outside influence, for sure, right? Because right, she doesn't really right. have a base of any kind. And uh, you know, there may have been, you know, to put it bluntly, the CIA made it might have gotten to her, you know, and, and has a lot of influence over her, and so. It's just a simple matter of wanting someone in power that they have more influence over. And uh, I suspect that that's, you know, there may very well be some truth to that. Yeah, I, I think that uh, th there may be something to that. We're going to have to wait and see. You know, I was surprised to see this chaos in parliament. I've never I've never seen a situation in a in a you know democratic country or a country that has a history of democratic elections where the entire party system just sort of falls apart. And uh, there was a piece in the Washington Post today, for example, saying that Boluarte uh, wants to begin conducting negotiations with representatives of these different factions in the parliament to try to get the economy back on track and try to get past some of the, the political problems that have dogged the country. But because the parties have fallen apart, there are just too many people who would want to take part in these negotiations. Now everybody sees himself or herself as a party leader. How do you even get past something like this? It, it seems almost like political anarchy. Yeah, well, that's what it is, right? I mean, you mentioned that they've gone through a number of presidents um, in a very short amount of time. Uh, 
again, this is not a basis for any sort of political stability. I think it's a very dangerous moment there, you know, in which uh, someone like a Fujimori could come to power, right? That you could have a strong man that comes to power in the midst of this chaotic situation. Um, and that's what makes it a very, very scary situation, really, I would I would think for the proving people. Yeah. We spoke yesterday on the show about Christina Kirchner and her corruption trial in Argentina. This this doesn't seem to be a case of politics, which has dogged previous presidents of uh, of Argentina. So many of them, almost too many to name, have been dogged by corruption charges over the last 20 or 30 years. Christina Kirchner was convicted after having been accused of embezzling money from a national highways project. Three other people were also convicted. Am I missing a bigger point here? Was this a political case or was this a simple case of a politician stealing money? Well, you know, there's certainly some evidence that there's politics involved. I I was reading that the judges involved in her prosecution are aligned very closely with the former Macri um, government, Uh which uh, was a neoliberal government, very pro-IMF, which she has, of course, you know, tried to push back against, against neoliberal economic policies um, and the IMF. And even in, in, in her current position as vice president, she was really pushing the president more towards the left. I mean, she was more, she was definitely to the left of him. And so definitely, and of course she was supportive of the pink tide. She was friends with Chavez. Um, She was always uh, friendly with the progressive governments that the U.S. of course can't stand and has wanted to overthrow uh, themselves. So I certainly think politics are play a part in this. You know, whether it's a convergence of of the political situation plus her own failings, I guess that remains to be seen. I mean, I, I think that the allegations to me seemed not terribly strong. At the same time, she's on her way out anyway. As you say, she's not going to end up in jail. I don't think she was planning on running. No. Again. No. In fact, she said that today. She she has no intention of running for reelection as vice president for election as president or even to the Argentine Senate. She said she's done. Right. Although she may be saying that to lessen the pressure on her. You know, if it, if it is political pressure, she is being attacked for politics saying, OK, I'm getting out of politics is a way to maybe, you know, soften the blow a little bit. As our guest yesterday said, you know, you can also if you if you think that there's a political element to to what's happening here. And I think, you know, there's there's sort of a pattern of corruption is corruption is one of those things where you can sort of make it, you know, you can choose to see it or choose not to see it and you can deploy it uh, with a lot of discretion. And so, you know, like Kirchner is is one person, but the political movement that she represents is not right. So her deciding that. It's the end of her career in politics. You know, it, the implications are are broader than that. And, uh, you know, our guest yesterday was saying there's there is something to her allegations that this is a you know, th- this is a sort of judicial mafia that's attempting to chill the kind of economic agenda that she represents, which is bigger than one politician. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I agree. And I, I mean, I think it looks a lot like what happened to Lula, mm-hmm, very mm-hmm. similar sure. charges. 
And he ended up in jail and sidelined in jail during the 2018 elections, which led to Bolsonaro being elected. And now we know that that was a political setup, that the U.S. was largely behind it through the car wash campaign that the U.S. Justice Department uh, promoted. And it looks a lot like that. So I think that that has to be considered, you know, and she's been under incredible pressure. I mean, as you know, she survived an assassination attempt very mm-hmm. recently where she oh, was yeah. shot at. Yeah. Oh, yeah. She was shot at a very Point close blank range. range. Yeah. Yeah. Point blank range. And, she, and, and the, the gun, gun happened to jam. Otherwise, she'd be dead. You know, That's so right. I think that, you know. Certainly there's political motivation. And as you say, you know, you may have a system there where everyone's uh, feeding from the trough and they, they decide, to, you know, who to go after based on, yeah. on political uh, motivation. Dan, finally, uh, you recently returned from an extended trip to Russia, including um, a trip to Donetsk. I'd love to hear about your experiences there. Can you give us a little overview? Well, first of all, I mean, Russia was pretty amazing. I was very impressed with how well the country seems to be doing. Moscow is beautiful. It's clean. I mean, frankly, it made me realize how filthy my own town is. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It's a very orderly society. Um, And people were very friendly. Let me just say, you know, there were people like, oh, be, you know, you should be careful going to Russia. Of course, the State Department tells you that you end up like Brittany Griner in jail. It's like. Well, you know, I didn't bring any controlled substances in, so I had no trouble, and people were very friendly to me and nice. And frankly, when people heard me speaking English, I mean, they would turn around, smile. No, sorry, I don't believe you. <laughs> I don't believe that part. I was on board. I, my experience, people are kind kind and welcoming and friendly. That does not include smiling at no, strangers. They don't smile. <laughs> like Finland. No, I'm just teasing. I yeah, I believe you. There was this one family. I was in line with them. Was speaking English, and um, the little girl was learning English. She was she started looking at me, talking to her parents, and then you know I ended up going out with the dad. He took me out to dinner, gave me a tour of the city. I mean, it was amazing. Wow. Mm-hmm. And then in Donetsk, of course, which people if they you know if they're not familiar, Donetsk is one of the republics that. In what was Eastern Ukraine, I guess, is part of Russia now after the referendum in September. This has been a hot spot for eight years. Uh, it's been part of a civil war, really, between the government of Kiev and, and the Donbass in which Donetsk is situated. And I was uh, – I spent a week there, and that was an, an amazing experience as well. First of all, I, I was stayed in Donetsk City, which at least at that time when I was there was pretty – it was very functional, cars driving around, people going to restaurants. I mean if you lacked hearing, you 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 could actually believe you were not in a war zone. And I say uh, lacked hearing because if you uh, – there was the sound of shelling almost all day long. You could hear. Um, but but otherwise, it seemed very normal. The, while I was there, a uh, school was shelled. Another building that gives water was shelled. Uh, the stadium was shelled, all by Ukraine, by the way. Uh, and a monastery uh, that the folks who brought me there are associated with. We brought clothing for the monks there. That's being shelled almost daily by the by the Ukrainian government. And you see, they're starting to go after even the Ukrainian Orthodox Church, the government in Kiev. Um, they've started to actually make it illegal, at least the part that's uh, still linked to Moscow. Now, but what, since I've left, I understand the shelling against Donetsk has actually increased greatly. Uh-huh. Uh, a parliamentarian was killed. 
so I guess I was lucky in a certain way. I was there during a pretty calm time, and and it was, um, again, surprising. Um, meanwhile, you know, it, it has to be said that Russia's actually engaged in a lot of construction in that republic. I, I went to Mariupol, which is the place that had that big battle uh, where the Azov battalion was in the steel mill, right? And this lasted for weeks, very tough battle. And so a lot of the city was destroyed, but Russia's now building houses and a hospital, uh, planting trees in parks. What I can say definitely is this, and that you could take to the bank, is that the people in that particular region are very much aligned with Russia and yeah. very happy that Russia came in. That, that's different, obviously, from the western part of Ukraine, which has a very different view. But these people wanted Russia to come in eight years ago. Yeah, they did. Yeah, that's right. And that's what the people don't realize. There's a lot of Russian flags that people are flying and, you know, it does not feel like an occupied area. The news tries to claim that, oh, like Mariupol fell to the Russians. It's now being occupied. Truthfully, you don't see many soldiers at all within the cities. There's no checkpoints. Interesting. You know, it does not feel like an occupied area. And again, because I think people are happy. That the Russians are there, and there's certainly no guerrilla warfare, right? If you have a, if you have an occupation, people don't like, they're going to be fighting the occupiers. That's just not happening. It's no, we're not seeing that at all. And even the Western press isn't uh, isn't claiming that that's happening. We're going to have to leave it there, Dan. Dan Kovalik is a labor attorney, human rights activist, and author. His latest book is called "Cancel This Book: The Progressive Case Against Cancel Culture." Thanks for joining us, Dan. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We're going to take a short break and come back. Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, here with Michelle Witte. Chinese leader Xi Jinping received a very warm welcome in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia this morning after arriving for a number of summits that both sides are heralding as, quote, an epic-making milestone, unquote, in Chinese relations with the Arab world. Within hours of Xi's arrival, the two sides had already signed a comprehensive strategic partnership agreement. That includes a number of deals and memoranda of understanding, including on hydrogen energy development, on coordination between the kingdom's Vision 2030 and China's Belt and Road Initiative, and with regard to direct investment. Observers are saying that Xi's visit so far is exactly the opposite of the visit of President Joe Biden to the kingdom in July. Meanwhile, Iran executed a man yesterday for participating in the months-long nationwide uprising there. They accused him of having been complicit in the death of a policeman, and the Taliban in Afghanistan carried out their first public execution since returning to power last year. The dead man had been convicted of murdering a man and stealing his cell phone and bicycle. The victim's father shot the killer three times in a public square in Farah province. Ali Al-Ahmed is a Saudi scholar and expert on Saudi political affairs, including terrorism, Islamic movements, Wahhabism. Saudi political history, Saudi-American relations, and the Al Saud royal family. He's a writer and public speaker on Saudi political issues. Ali, it's been too long. Welcome back. Thank you so much. 
Ali, this is... I'm taking a break, that's why. (laughs) That's right. We all could use a break. This is the first visit to Saudi Arabia for President Xi Jinping in seven years. And it appears that it's going to be a very, very lucrative visit for both sides. It seems to me that this is not just a meeting on business and investment. It's actually a watershed in relations between the two countries. What does this visit tell you about Saudi-Chinese relations? And what do you think the visit means for Saudi-U.S. relations? This visit, uh, the Chinese uh, president's visit to Saudi Arabia and uh, the meeting, the regional meeting, he is uh, going to have uh, uh, not only with the Saudi leaders, but also with the Gulf and Arab. That's right. Uh, you mentioned it's a watershed. I think it's even greater than that. This is a this is going to change the region forever. Uh, and uh, in, in 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 many words, this this uh, uh, Chinese train uh, is uh, not stopping. Uh, uh, this is a moment that people and historians will mark uh, that the region, the Arab region, will will uh, change. Uh, um, uh, for the next you know, decades, if not forever. Uh, and uh, it will be less America and more uh, China and more East. Uh, and the fault lies in, in Washington, definitely, because Mr. Uh, uh, the President of China is coming with what? With a lot of economic projects. Right. Uh, when... when um, uh, Biden went for one for like not even a day. Honestly, yes. This Chinese president stayed there for three days plus. Uh, what did he? How many projects did he sign? How many uh, development, economic development projects did he sign? Zero. What did he care about? About Saudi Arabia establishing a relationship with Israel, the oil, the American hostages, all that stuff did not matter. Uh, and selling arms, obviously. So uh, this uh, is not sustainable. Uh, and this policy, I don't think, will change, uh, unfortunately. Uh, but fortunately, maybe for the people of the region, their their cities will, will look better because the Chinese will make it better. Uh, America will lose influence, definitely. But it's their fault because they, they did not uh, have in their mind a policy that that actually helps them and helps the people of, of that region. If you are not going to push for democracy and freedoms in the region, you could have at least pushed for schools, better roads, and made money in, in the process. The Chinese are doing it. They're not pushing for human rights, but they are uh, going to make the roads and hospitals and schools yes. look much better and modernize. The Americans never had this idea. You are absolutely of, of right. Making money. And I tell you this because I spent over 10 years bringing this ideas, this idea to the American officials from the Bush administration until the Biden administration. I, by saying, we have, you know, this is like, you know, years ago, 30,000 schools in, in Saudi Arabia that are not usable, they, they, you know, they, and mostly rented uh, homes and apartments and so on. Why don't you engage the Saudis so American companies can build modern, you know, safe mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. schools that have, you know, uh, central air conditioning? Because Saudi Arabia's schools have no central air conditioning in a hot country. 
And you can make billions of dollars, much more than the, the money you make in, in sales of guns and bombs. And they didn't care because maybe in their mind, you know, I, I think this is something my, my cynical side saying that because they, they thought these officials, these people do not deserve better, do not deserve better schools. Otherwise, why wouldn't you, why mm-hmm. are you throwing this billions and billions of dollars worth of opportunity away? Well, you you raise a very, very important point here, and that is that the U.S.-Saudi relationship has always been built on defense and weapons sales. It's not been based on the construction of hospitals and roads and schools and things like that. Do you think now that the Saudis have this mutually beneficial relationship with China, that that pretty much pretty much makes the rift between the United States and Saudi Arabia uh, permanent. Uh, How do you see U.S.-Saudi relations playing out over the next several years? Will this change in any way? I'm not going to call it a rift because I don't see the rift. Biden supported uh, MBS clearly. And uh, but, uh, you know, in the public, he says he, you know, they're angry, but privately and actually, there is nothing like that. I'll give you a very simple example here. There has been an American. Today is, today is a very good day. An American citizen, okay, who has been in prison since November of last year. So it's, it's a, a year plus. 74-year-old American who is in Saudi Arabia, in prison at the moment, sentenced to die in Saudi prisons. So he was sentenced to basically 17 years. And he was 70 when he was 72. So he's going to be, what, 90 when he gets out? The right. Biden administration refused to meet his son, refused to, to classify him as a wrongfully detained American, refused to say his name. That there is a, not a single statement from the American uh, officialdom where they mentioned the name of Saad al-Mabi. And he was in prison before Brittany Grenier, and he was not bringing drugs. He was just tweeting stuff that is completely harmless. It doesn't have anything. Yet, they refused to push for his release. Biden went, met with with MBS, did not raise the issue, did not bring it up, did not uh, have any slowdown of anything to uh, bring this guy uh, home or offer a swipe. Because mm-hmm. there are some Saudis in, in, in American prisons that they could swipe, swipe them with. There is a rapist and uh, some young kid who was trapped into this terrorism uh, charge by the FBI. They could swipe, you know, they could, they could swipe these prisoners. But no, they, they, they did it with Russia and they claim they cannot do it with the Saudis. So I, I don't see any um, uh, pressure. I mean, because I deal with this sort of uh, one on one, and I don't see any change in policy. But some statements and some media, some especially the mainstream media, they are not going to say, "Oh, uh, Biden is is friendly with MBS. Oh, it's 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 not his fault. Oh, he he was uh, as as the Washington Post put it, and <laughs> that he was fooled uh, or tripped by MBS. Mm-hmm. This is not true. The, 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 the Biden administration knows very well." Uh, what they are doing, but they need that appearance in public that they are at odds with the Saudis. Otherwise, you would not see the arms sales continue, and there is no opposition from Congress, by the way. That's right. You would not see the new bases that's been 
American bases and and uh, and the training and all of these things. Um, I, I I I I want to make sure that the, your uh, audience uh, understand this. This is basically fake fake news, as Trump used to say. Well, this is this is actually my next question. I worked for a U.S. ambassador to Saudi Arabia early on in my career, Ambassador Chaz Freeman. Uh, he said that the bilateral relationship between the United States and Saudi Arabia was actually very simple. We sell the Saudis weapons and the Saudis sell us oil, period. In the event that Saudi Arabia needs to be defended or needed to be defended, we would do that like we did in 1991. But that seems to have changed uh, to me. We don't really need Saudi oil anymore. Certainly the Europeans do, but we could get along without it. And the Saudis are happy to buy weapons from the French, the British, the Chinese, the Russians, whomever happens to be selling it. Do you see this as a permanent change or as a temporary change? And what do you think all of this means for relations, for U.S. relations with the likes of Kuwait and Bahrain and the United Arab Emirates? I, I, you are absolutely right. This, the, like I said, this is a, a this moment is is as a historical shift. The not only the Saudis but also the smaller state that they they owe their survival to the Americans are shifting toward the uh, the uh, the Chinese in terms of economic uh, development and relationship because the market is there. This is the emerging market. The American, uh, uh, the Americans have only one thing in their mind: oh, we want you to buy more weapons from us. The Chinese, this is not their first. They, they, it's not like they are not going to sell weapons if the, if the Saudis are asking and they are selling them. But uh, they, this is not their first thing. They say, you know, we can help you build the, these uh, roads. You have flooding issues. We can do that. And it will be cheaper and better than the Americans are going to do it. And they, they will do it. Even those who owe their survival, like the Al-Khalifa regime in Bahrain. Exactly. Or the Al-Subah regime in, 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 in Kuwait. In Kuwait. Uh, uh, they will go with the Chinese in a drop of a hat. Because the Americans, especially the Biden administration, have lost that initiative. The upper hand, I would, I would call it. I, I think now we have a lower hand of the United States, uh, and uh, uh, in, in a way, I think I wrote the switch a few days ago, it, it's, if you look at this, you, you would think, the way things are moving, that the Biden administration and the American administration in general, not only the, uh, the, the Biden, uh, you know, this is the same thing with Trump and, and Obama especially and others, you would think these American uh, presidents and, and administrations are working for the Chinese because they're doing everything to to push these countries toward China. Uh, yes. And that's exactly what's happening. One last question. The Iranians carried out their first execution related to these nationwide uh, uh, protests. The man executed was reported to have participated in the killing of a policeman. Are we going to see more executions, do you think, in the near future? And is the Iranian government willing to make permanent changes to satisfy the protesters? I think uh, uh, there, there will be more executions because, you know, uh, there was violent uh, clashes and the Iranian government has, a, has basically, uh, in their history, they don't, they don't hold back on these things. But I want to make one notice here because I have read about it. The way the execution of this man, uh, who might have been guilty or not, uh, I, I, I really don't know, but 
he was described by Reuters and all the American and Western as a protester. Mm. When it came to similar people, because I, I, these, these, these were my friends, and I know them personally, who were executed in Saudi Arabia, not a single outlet called them protesters, although not even the Saudi government has accused them of killing anybody. They were protesting and giving speeches, and they were executed for that alone. But they did not deserve the word protester. Instead, they are called militants because they are opposing the Saudi monarchy. But in Iran, even those who are accused, rightly or wrongly, of killing an officer yes. uh, are called protesters. And this is very important to realize that the weaponization of, of words, of the words. Uh, by the media yes. and, and, and creating, this is, this is honestly fake news because uh, uh, in the same thing when, when you talk about Brittany Grenier and uh, Victor Bott, yes, he's an arms dealer, but she is described not a convicted uh, drug, drug smuggler. Uh, smuggler. Yes. But she's described as an NBA star. Yes, basketball He's- player. And and I'm very, very sorry that we're out of time. We have a hard break at the top of the hour. Ali Al-Ahmed, thank you so much for joining us. Ali is a Saudi scholar and expert on a wide variety of Saudi political issues. He's a writer and public speaker as well. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We'll take a short break and we'll come back with our second hour of news. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte here with John Kiriakou diving into some more domestic news. We are going to talk about, uh, surprise, surprise, aid to Ukraine, not going to be audited, just like uh, nothing that goes through the Pentagon is audited. No. Uh, we, it can't be. Yeah, no. Just because... So much money has been wasted and so much money has been lost. It's just impossible to try to balance the books now after all these years. And, you know, all of the the MMT uh, advocates who we have on the show are going to be mad later on when I say, you know, this is they are spending public money. These are taxpayer dollars or whatever. But it is always presented to us as this zero sum game. Right. Mm -hmm. So, like, if that's That's the idea you want to sell, yeah, people should be mad. Right. That you can't find two trillion dollars that you took from more, actually. Right. More than that now. Yeah, we're going to talk about the uh, fact that it seems like these attacks on power stations, they're not, as you mentioned earlier, not confined to North Carolina or even South Carolina or even the East Coast. And in fact, uh, the federal government has been warning about something like this for the past couple of weeks, which is wild. We're going to talk about Trump finding more classified documents, that story that broke as we were leaving the show yesterday. We're going to talk about Elon Musk suggesting that uh, there are Data might be hidden from him and from former Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey, but so far, just suggestions, really. Um, and I want to talk, if we have time, about a uh, a case that's going to come before the Supreme Court later uh, next year that uh, could affect what responsibility media companies bear for the content that their algorithms generate. So not getting rid of Section 230 that protects these platforms from the content that users put on there, uh, but in a narrow way could maybe hold them responsible for what their algorithms end up putting in front of people, which I think is interesting and maybe appropriate. 
Uh, joining us for all of these conversations is Ted Rawl. He's an award-winning political cartoonist. He's a columnist. He's an author. His latest book is The Stringer. He's also co-host of the DMZ America podcast with Scott Stantis. Ted, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Michelle. Good to be here. Uh, let's talk about auditing. Uh, earlier this week, a proposal by fan favorite Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene to audit the tens of billions of dollars of support that we are providing to Ukraine was voted down in the House Foreign Affairs Committee with every Democratic member of the committee voting against it. Uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene, you know, for all I know, maybe she does care deeply about uh, keeping good financial records. But I do think a lot of a lot of Republican opposition to Ukraine funding is also very political. Uh, and so, you know, I, I would love to see our Ukraine aid actually tracked and audited. I would love to see a Pentagon audit that shows us where those trillions of dollars go. And worth noting that in their most recent uh, failed audit, the fifth in the row that they failed, the department could only account, this is according to Responsible Statecraft, could only account for 39% of $3.5 trillion in assets. So, you know, it, trillions of dollars of U, U.S. taxpayer money just out in the ether. And, uh, you know, I, I wonder. So this is the thing, right? Uh, the other day it was Josh Hawley, I think, who was saying, no, 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 we, we need to stop sending money to, to Ukraine. We should be sending it to Taiwan. <laughs> and so I guess my question is, you know, yeah, I would like to see I would like to see uh, robust efforts to track where this aid is going. But how strongly should we get behind efforts that are clearly going to be so limited. You know what I mean? Like, I don't think MTG is going to be calling for audits on our aid to Taiwan. And I know, you know, it is way less consequential because it's way smaller amounts. But, you know, these Republicans don't want to turn out the Pentagon's pockets. And so I wonder how much enthusiasm we should greet these proposals with. Well, I think we should greet them with great enthusiasm, but with no idea of optimism that they will actually be enacted or 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 ever come to be. Right? Okay. Um, this is a thirty nine percent is actually seems to me like a high number. Uh, my uh, Chalm the late Chalmers Johnson, who was a professor at UC San Diego, was famous for his books on blowback and Pentagon spending, and uh, he told me that uh, he called. The Pentagon one time to ask them for a list of all uh, U foreign U.S. military bases, and the Pentagon could only estimate within a hundred the number of such bases. They didn't have a spreadsheet where they could tell you there was no list of them. They couldn't say if you or the, and they couldn't really be sure if you mentioned a particular country exactly how many bases there were in that country and where they were located. I mean, that's the kind of organization we're talking about. They don't know what's going on there. The money is just uh, being shoveled at uh, contractors and, uh, you know, willy nilly. So I agree with John uh, from in the opener that there's probably no way really to do an audit. Um, the big issue really is just the idea of massive runaway Pentagon spending in the first place, the idea that we have to that we have to uh, buy, to generate and buy and sell more arms than the next seven or eight countries uh, combined, combined in the world. The idea that uh, that this is this is just the, the you know should be our top taxpayer priority, um, you know, in terms of spending, as opposed to say education or healthcare. Uh, so, it, the, you know, I think once you get past that, then you can like get down into the weeds about like how the money is wasted. But it's kind of like 
it's all a waste, including the stuff that's not wasted. And I think that's kind of like the big issue. But the, these, you know, with so much cash flying around, fraud is not, you know, it's not a bug. It's a core feature of the system. Yeah. And it's that's what's frustrating because it's it's just whack-a-mole, right? So you get behind Republicans when they want to audit the Ukraine aid because you go, yes, OK, of course, that's good. Do it. And then, you know, you get behind Democrats because they want to audit, you know, whatever aid that's going somewhere else to the war that's not their war, you know. And you say, yeah, OK, sure, do that. But nobody actually, as you say, no one wants to get under the hood there because it's way too embarrassing and way too many people are making way too much money. You know, it's it's uh, and so you think like. Is it is it helpful to to support these individual efforts when they're not part of any sort of larger principle? Or do you hold out for, you know, clearing the board, right, and getting some principle back into play? Well, it's it's the question. It's the bird's eye view question, right? I yeah. mean, everyone's heard of the $800 toilet seat. Right. But what about the plane the $800 toilet seat went into? Maybe that plane never needed to be made in the first place. So um, that's but we don't but, you know, we're, we focus on the little stuff. Let's talk about these uh, attacks on power substations. Turns out the the attack in North Carolina that got a lot of news because it did knock out power <laughs> to tens of thousands of people. Uh, it was not the first. Authorities in Oregon and Washington have revealed that power companies there have been the subject of similar attacks. And a federal memo that went out last month uh, warning electric power companies said that hand tools, arson, firearms and metal chains have been used to damage substations, possibly in response to online call for attacks on critical infrastructure. Uh, So in this warning, they were calling it violent anti-government criminal activity. The FBI is investigating multiple attacks, including another one yesterday near a power station in South Carolina. And, you know, we we talked to a guest on the show uh, about this a little bit yesterday. And uh, I think it is I think it is correct to be cautious about applying the term terrorism to any situation. And, you know, there's the, the definitely now the possibility that people will have gotten it into their heads that this is a thing you can do and you'll have idiot copycat out, you know, people out there. But uh it also has the power to be a pretty disruptive trend if indeed there are people who are doing this, uh, you know, doing this uh, for reasons that would fall under the umbrella of domestic terrorism. And so I wonder I wonder what you think is going on and if this is the beginning of a trend. Well, I'm really of two minds about a lot of these things. Like, for example, you know, is it violent? Uh, well, I mean, it's dangerous potentially, right? I mean, yeah. if, uh, if, if traffic signals are, are not operational, that can cause accidents. Uh, you know, hospitals deprived of power could lose uh, access to equipment that they need. Yeah. So people could die as a result. So it is serious. But is it but it, would it really it would be more accurate to call it sabotage. Mm-hmm. And in terms of anti-government, there's absolutely no in the, you know, no no evidence that's been presented other than rank speculation that this is anything other than just what it seems like. You know, uh, it's sabotage, vandalism of power infrastructure. And, you know, you could imagine far right ideologies, but you could also imagine far left ideologies like radical, you know, environmentalists, for example, uh, doing similar things. And it could also be just a very small number of people who travel, you know, I mean, there's, you know, Let's say someone whose work takes them, uh, you know, a trucker, someone who goes to different states all the time uh, and they just get their rocks off doing this sort of thing. I mean, there's so many possible explanations and possible motivations that I always get very suspicious when, uh, you know, when the government immediately says, 
we think it's this, and they're not going to say why they think it's this. Well, if you, you know, if you think it's this and you want us to believe you, then pony up the evidence. Otherwise, I'm just going to be in wait and see mode. Good point. Ted. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, we'll have to see if they do actually pony up any of that right. evidence. Right. On the topic of ponying up, uh, <laughs> Donald Trump, uh, Donald Trump's own team of lawyers have apparently uh, turned up more classified documents. We mentioned this on the show yesterday when it broke. He hired a team of people, I guess, to take a look around and just check and see if uh, he had <laughs> accidentally brought anything else from the White House. And indeed, they came out with uh, documents marked as classified, just hanging out in a storage unit in Florida. And I do not know at this point what to think of this, right? I, there's a lot of uh, speculation that, like, Donald Trump stole nuclear secrets to sell after he left the White House. And, you know, <laughs> sure, maybe maybe that was the case. I don't know. So, you know, was some of it deliberate, some of it accidental? I, I you know, he's, like, now obviously trying to give the appearance of, of complying in every way with this investigation. And he seems like he actually is complying also. I don't know. What, what do you think of this, Ted? Uh, I'm going to take this one at face value. I, I think he's spooked and scared. Uh, his lawyers told him that this is an investigation he needs to take very seriously and that, and that if he has any classified documents at all, he needs to bend over backwards to make sure he, you know, he turns them back in. Um, the initial, uh, you know, things have gone pretty well for him so far with this particular investigation. And I think he wants to keep it that way. Sounds to me like, uh, you know, he, this is a straight up, seriously turn the place upside down. Uh, I'm a bit of a slob and I have a big wide, you know, big, uh, a wide ranging business operation and documents could be in any number of places and I don't want to miss any and then get in trouble. I mean, you'd think, yeah, it's just like, well then how often does what? What was going on when they were packing things up? You know what I mean? Like, that's what's it's this is what's sort of interesting to me also. Right. Like Donald Trump is not packing his own boxes. Right. I fully believe he's directing people what to bring. But then is it is it always this sloppy and just we don't look for it or like, you know, other other past presidents have put all their presidential documents in one designated presidential storage area. And Donald Trump just dropped his off at all of his different properties. Yeah. You know, uh, when we've talked about this before, I always like to remind you of the massive amounts of paper that we're talking about mm -hmm. here. I mean, we're talking about hundreds of millions of pages in a four in a four year presidential administration. You're talking about and more now with digital stuff. Right. I mean, it's it, you know, we were told that uh, that the computers would reduce paperwork. It's only increased it. And um, so I think, you know, just, just, you have to imagine a, a warehouse full of bankers boxes, full of files going all the way to the ceiling. And as far as the eye can see, and that gives you some approximation of what we're talking about. He took, you know, he ordered some stuff brought with him. It was shipped off. I think this is done. It's pretty sloppy and there's a lot of stuff. I mean, when I did research, at the National Archives, I was mostly dealing with stuff from World War II, long time ago, and there were, and nevertheless, they were bringing, oh, they were bringing me pallets full of boxes that had not been opened since FDR died in 1945, that nobody had ever been through, and you know, I wasn't involved in something obscure. I was looking at D-Day and Vichy and stuff like that. So, um, you know, it, it's just impossible to fathom. But when you've seen, when you've been to the National Archives and you've seen that, yeah. this is not surprising at all. 
It's, I mean, we'll see. Maybe these are the last. Maybe they're not. There's going to be, you know, stuck in the uh, the little people who used to have a little uh, basket in the bathroom for reading material yeah, before everyone had sure. cell phones. Find some <laughs> sure. Classified documents in there Could to peruse. Be. Yeah. Next to the old copy of New York Magazine. Yeah. Yes. Um, I also wanted to talk. I will talk a little bit about um, Internet control and censorship. I, I wanted to get your thoughts on the DOJ weighing in on a potentially important lawsuit against social media companies over their content. The Biden administration yesterday told the U.S. Supreme Court that in some cases, uh, social media companies can be held liable for promoting harmful speech. And so they have partially sided with a family that is trying to sue Google over a terrorist attack that killed their son. They are saying YouTube, which is owned by Alphabet, which owns Google, so they're saying YouTube's algorithms put hateful content in front of users, in this case, recommending ISIS related content. And the government has just said that the family should be allowed to appeal an original ruling that tossed out their complaint. Uh, and so basically they're saying social media companies can't be held liable simply for allowing content to be posted or for failing to remove it. But I guess it seems like they are considering the possibility that these companies should be responsible for how their own algorithms promote that content. And if this, uh, you know, if a court ends up finding that this is the case, it will narrow the interpretation of Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, which we were all talking about a couple of months ago. That is the act that shields platforms from being held liable for content that's generated by by users. And so I wonder, you know, People are get really up in arms over um, Section 230 and, uh, you know, that that these platforms should be, you know, should be shielded from being sued for what their users create, because otherwise they just can't possibly work. But I do think algorithms, it's possible that they're another story, right? Algorithms are created by these companies in order to, you know, keep keep eyes on their products. And so maybe they should be held responsible for what those algorithms promote. I think they should be, and I would actually be surprised if the court doesn't uh, in, doesn't issue some sort of ruling that confirms that. Uh, it might be in some watered-down fashion, but I think, um, look, algorithms are not neutral. They're not, you know, the companies have always marketed them as some kind of thing that's handed down by God, but the fact is they're 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 programmed by human beings. And uh, even when AI is involved, they are still designed by human beings. And so, you know, I mean, if it's sort of if we sort of draw the analogy to a telecom, uh, you know, it's like can AT and T be held responsible for every phone call? No, because it doesn't monitor the phone calls and it has a high volume of them, and they go out in whatever order they're they're pushed. But when you're talking about like, let's say there was a phone call that the AT&T algorithm pushed out aggressively. So it didn't just go from point A to point B, but it went to a, a thousand people who didn't ask to get that phone call. Mm-hmm. You know, they're, 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 they're promoting it there. And then Mina, at the same time, they're pushing down, right? Throttling other phone calls in this tortured analogy. <laughs> so what, how, what, you know, uh, yeah. I mean, you know, they're picking winners and losers to use Republican uh, jargon. Uh, they're deciding what, what is seen and what is not seen. So that makes them a publisher. Uh, you know, in, it's always been my view, although my friends who work in Silicon Valley say this would never work from a uh, profit incentive point of view, but it's always been my point of view that like Twitter and Facebook and the rest, 
should just have everybody's feed go in reverse chronological order, period. And there shouldn't be any algorithms that promote or throttle anything. Um, And that's just not how it works. Um, That's for a variety of reasons. But since it doesn't work that way, they are, I think they're exposed legally and they should be responsible when the consequences of those decisions that they have made harm someone, as seems to be the case with this family, with this plaintiff. Yeah, man, that brings to mind, there were some people doing experiments with what would happen with children's programming. If it was just kind of left alone, what the the algorithms would go go to very dark stuff. I mean, if you're if you're oh, quickly too, yeah, if left alone. So again, if they are uh, found to be liable uh, potentially for algorithms promoting, you know, ISIS content, maybe they'll be liable for promoting alg- algorithms that send uh, really dark and disturbing imagery toward children. I would be totally okay with that as a parent. I, I think that would be great. Yeah, sure. I mean, it's there's no excuse for it. You recently had a had a run in with the uh, the long arm of the law and social media. What happened to you? Oh, well, uh, yeah, it's just very just today. Mm-hmm. Um, I got uh, I got kicked off Facebook. And um, for so I, you know, to, I have a variety of, of punitive actions, most of which don't affect me because they're services I, I never use, like going live and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But um, basically, I put uh, Time magazine selected Ukrainian President Zelensky as its man of the year uh, with a uh, very fulsome propagandistic uh, image that just made me laugh. And uh, and so I, I, I posted to Facebook and Twitter identical posts in which I said, uh, you know, hey, where's the where's the picture of the Azov battalion? Where's the neo-Nazi symbolism? Mm. And uh, obviously, uh, that's the part. They don't tell you why you're kicked off. They just say that you violated your terms of service. What was cute about it was it said, if you disagree, we have a method. You can you can tell us why. It'll improve our process. So I, I clicked, yes, I disagree. And then I, got, then I got another message that said, due to COVID, we don't have anyone who can <laughs> actually as, assess or deal with your thing. Sorry, uh, better luck next time. Uh, and uh, so, yeah, so, but what was interesting is that um, Garland Nixon, also uh, on Sputnik, um, he he had shared my the thing that I posted to Twitter and Facebook, the Zelensky cover and my comment onto uh, Twitter and Facebook. He got blocked on Twitter, but not Facebook. I got blocked from Twitter, Facebook, but not Twitter. Yeah, it's almost like it's arbitrary. And then he got blocked from Facebook today. Mm-hmm. Garland oh, did. Oh, he did? Yeah, yeah, they they suspended him today. Yeah. Oh, maybe Twitter's gonna, Twitter will come after me tomorrow. Um, yeah, it's, I mean, it's, I think it's an, I do think it's an algorithm. I don't think there's a human being looking at these things, or maybe it's a human being looking at it for 10 seconds and they see the word Nazi or Azov and then they just kick you off and that's it. Um, You know, it's, I wouldn't be at all surprised if this was outsourced to a, uh, a, you know, a a data farm in Bangladesh. Definitely. Yeah. I thought Twitter was supposed to be all about free speech now. Yeah. Well, um, you know, not, not for Garland. Um, For me, for now, temporarily, they seem seem to be doing it. Uh, What was interesting is I had also... Uh, parenthetically, uh, gone off Facebook for about uh, two weeks voluntarily uh, last two weeks because I noticed that so much of my political content, like my cartoons and my columns, were constantly being throttled. 
and nothing was coming up in, in my friend's feeds. So I had heard that if you went off and came back on, sometimes that would change. I mean, I talked about, oh. you know, the diet I'm on and, and that would get like 300 likes. <laughs> I'd do a cartoon and I'd get like two likes and I might, my cartoons might not be that great, but I think they're, <laughs> you know, most people who are following me on Facebook. I like them when I see them. I do too. Yeah. So you got two likers right here. But maybe people like my intermittent fasting better. But the point is, <laughs> it was, uh, but when I came back, it did work. And for that day or two before the Zelensky thing, I ended up, uh, you know, I was suddenly rocking it and getting all sorts of comments on my political stuff that hadn't been there before. So there's no question the algorithms are throttling political content. Yeah. And whether, again, it's not it's not a single human being sitting back there, go, you know, cackling and saying, take that, Ted, I don't like your view. It's sort of what how you craft the thing. And there's been a lot of complaints about, you know, the fact that any content about Palestine gets extra scrutiny. Um, and yes, yeah, so not surprising that any content about Ukraine is getting extra scrutiny um, on the topic of Twitter. Uh, we haven't talked to you about the whole Twitter files saga. Uh, of which there's another wrinkle today. Elon Musk suggesting uh, in the last 24 hours that he and former CEO Jack Dorsey might have been left out of the loop on some issues and processes and that data has been hidden from them or possibly deleted. And so given that this comes after his uh, abrupt high profile firing of the former general counsel, James Baker, uh, the implication is perhaps that he was part of hiding that information. And again, you know, this story has been dismissed as a nothing burger by most Democrats and by Republicans. Uh, they are pointing to it as evidence of a DNC control of the media. Uh, this sounds a little bit like Musk saying, oh, hey, you thought there wasn't much to that story. Well, that's because the good stuff got deleted. I, I don't know what you what do you make of this? Well, um, uh, first of all, I'm very happy that Musk released this stuff. Transparency is always good. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I, I think he's on the right side here. Um, you know, I, I think uh, Baker, it's probably less an issue of Baker having, you know, hidden it from Dorsey and Musk and, you know, them wanting to know and asking and being lied to. I doubt that's the case. Uh, I think it's more like uh, Musk found out after the fact that this was Baker's thing and he doesn't want he doesn't want uh, general counsel who you know was part of that and uh, you know, I, I think look it's not a nothing burger it is a big story um, and even if you it never went further than what was released in the media dump on Friday night and it was a media dump right Friday night oh yeah yeah I wondered about that yeah it is strange timing. I wanted to ask Matt Taibbi about that because it seemed to me like, uh, you know, like a, like an unforced error. You've got one yeah. hell of a scoop. You know, you couldn't sit on it until Sunday, let's say. Mm -hmm. um, but anyway, maybe he was worried that it was going to get out in some other way, which is always a possibility. Uh, or, you know, it, it was ready when it was ready. I don't know. Um, but it's, uh, you know, I, no, I think it's a big deal. Um, it, it, look, it's, it's a really gross relationship that the DNC had with Twitter and obviously with Facebook. And it's not just the DNC, it's the FBI, it's the RNC, it's anyone with power. I mean, like, mm -hmm. look at what just happened with, we just talked about me getting blocked from Facebook. Well, I can't contact Facebook and, you know, say, hey, you guys made a mistake. I didn't promote Nazism or anything that violated your terms of service. Nothing 
close to it. There's no way for me to get redress, right? But if I'm Nancy Pelosi, you bet I can get a I can get in to uh, talk to someone who knows Mark Zuckerberg personally. Right. Yeah. And um and and that relationship just shouldn't be. Um and I think that's kind of what this is all bringing to light. I, I don't think that even if the DNC has a legitimate concern, they should have any more access to Twitter or Facebook executives than you or me or my cat. I think that's, uh, you know, that's, it's, there's no reason for these elites to have that kind of access, but they do. And, you know, these are, these are news media companies. I mean, there's crazy statistics about the number of Americans who get their news through their Twitter feed, right? Like 60% or something that that's their number one news source. So in a sense, Twitter is more important to uh, yes. the public, to public speech and, and news gathering than the New York Times, the Washington Post, and CBS News combined. Uh, also, a last story in terms of, of access. Uh, what do you make of these reports that Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is under investigation by a House Ethics Committee? <laughs> uh, the committee has only said that, yes, she is a subject of a complaint made in June, and that is it, it is extending its review uh, and also stresses that the fact of an investigation does not mean that they will conclude that, you know, she erred in some way. Uh, not clear from what I could see whether this is related to complaints last year about AOC showing up at the Met Gala where tickets go for $35,000 ahead. Uh, members of Congress are allowed to get tickets to charity events from the organizers. Uh, people are pointing out that it is actually the for-profit media organization Condé Nast that actually issues those tickets. I don't know. I mean, AOC is, of course, a lightning rod. I do think she gets targeted disproportionately for scrutiny and criticism. She does also uh, kind of invite it by presenting herself as a, a great warrior for good in ways that she doesn't always live up to. And so, you know, this is more sort of what do you think about how the AOC phenomenon is playing out? Yeah, no, it's it's super interesting because in a way she's disliked by everybody now. Um, you know, I mean, yes. the right thinks that she's a uh, that she's the uh, re reincarnation of Rosa Luxemburg, and the left she's thinks so that she's, stupid. That's that she's awesome. a sellout. That she's like uh, you know Hillary Clinton two point yeah. uh, So and uh, you know it's it's she, she I guess she could she probably tells herself I'm doing something right. Everybody hates me, but. On the other hand, when everybody hates you, that's a problem, too. Um, I think the problem is that um, her brand is sort of uh, more about being a, uh, creating herself as a star and as a, as a person, as a Internet personality than it is uh, grassroots activism. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, she's she's kind of inaccessible within her own district and to her own constituents. Uh, you know, she's not exactly like, you know, a pothole filling congresswoman. Um, she's, uh, and I think, uh, obviously she's also got a lot of charisma and that, and, and she's a woman of color and she threatens people on the right. So I agree with everything you said, Michelle, uh, she's, she's, she's kind of asking for it, but it's also a lot of it's really unfair too. Yeah. I mean, there was, I do think I have to point out, like I, I might start to develop a little bit of a martyr complex if I did have uh, right-wing bloggers following me around uh, yelling at me that I'm their favorite uh, big booty Latina constantly. You know what right. I mean? Like that is garbage, right? And that is directed at her because she's a woman and because she's in the public eye and because she's cute, you know? And I think that's part of it too. Uh, but yeah, I feel like the, the, 
defenders of some of the squad members, like the sort of left defenders of some of the squad members are, are going to have to, you know, it's just the reality of what somebody does when they get into office uh, inevitably is going to jar with their sort of presentation of themselves as a sort of, uh, you know, uh, an iconoclastic sort of outsider who's in to shake the system up. You know what I mean? And I think that now she's sort of she and the squad are settling into roles where they basically, you know, sometimes argue about, but most of the time support what the centrist leadership of the party wants to do. And that's just the case. And sometimes that's stuff that's worth doing and sometimes it's not. But, you know, I, I think the the presentation of yourself as like a, you know, something super different it jars with people, which is fair enough. No, I think that's exactly right. It's always been kind of like one of my... Um, you know, my, my, my pet peeves, whether it's in pop culture or politics, if there's a gaping chasm between the way you present yourself and, uh, and what, and the way you frame yourself and what you, and how you actually are, that's a serious problem. You know, that's one of the reasons that Trump never really bugged me as much as a lot of other political figures. I'm like, this guy is exactly what you think he is. And, and there's no gap here. Whereas, you know, you'd get these um, mailers from the Democratic Party, you know, won't you contribute $20? We're fighting hard for workers' rights and for women's rights. It's like, you're not fighting at all. Don't tell me you're fighting. If you wanted to say, send us $20 and, uh, you know, we'll we'll think about maybe think about doing something and we'll form a blue ribbon committee right. to appoint a task force to look into doing something. Yeah. You know, fine, I'll buy that. But yeah, no, that that gap is is a very important thing in politics. Yeah, I will say again, and to to sort of soften what I said about her earlier is just that I do think it is also sort of the New York Post and Fox News that present uh, AOC as a sort of communist revolutionary a lot more than she herself actually does. And so sometimes and we're like, yeah, why is she making herself out to be this thing? Well, may, maybe she's actually not that much. And and we're buying a little bit of that. Hey, Ted, we got to let you go. It's always great to talk to you. Tell our listeners where they can go. Go uh, to listen to DMZ America, where they can find the Stringer and the rest of your work. So, any place that does podcasts, like Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts or whatever, just look up DMZ America with Ted Roll and Scott Stantis. And there's always my web, my website, Rawl.com, R A L L.com. Thanks for joining us, Ted. Great to talk to you. Thank you. Uh, you know what? Let's just skip this break. I know we have our next guest on the line and we've got some more uh, important stuff to get into. We're going to talk about. Um, Surveillance in Washington state and how pervasive surveillance is actually undercutting uh, the wishes of states to be sanctuaries, both for immigrants and for reproductive rights. We are going to talk about uh, citizenship and service in the U.S. Armed Forces uh, and why, uh, you know, serving in the army is not as straightforward a path to citizenship as perhaps it has been presented to people. We're also going to talk about Title 42 back in courts. Again, the Biden administration saying we really, really want to continue to be able to implement this uh, public health policy, but we promise we are not going to keep implementing it, which I feel like I have heard before. Right. Joining us for all of this is Maru Mora Bialpando. She's founder of La Resistencia. She's a community organizer. She's an immigrant activist. Maru, thanks for being here. Thank you. So earlier this week, a law, a proposed law to give deported veterans an easier path to returning to the United States and give non-citizen service members earlier opportunities to apply for naturalization past the House. Uh, but it would seem to have no chance in the Senate. And it made me think about, you know, the way that 
service in the armed forces is dangled before immigrants as a, you know, a, a sort of accelerated pathway to citizenship. I think it was, you know, explicitly offered to people who were allowed to stay legally in the country under the DACA program. And so I was surprised to see that, you know, there are a lot of deported veterans or that there still are hurdles to citizenship in front of people who, you know, might not be citizens, but who have served in the military. Uh, and so I, I just wanted to ask, you know, where, where it actually stands, as a, how military service can, you know, uh, speed up that process. Uh, let me go back a little <laughs> to sure. the Bush son era. Uh, remember when they were uh, drafting, pretty much it felt like people were being drafted to go to Iraq to, to fight a nonsense-less war. Um, and I remember in my undocumented community at that time, there was this rumor that if you uh, enroll uh, to go to fight in Iraq, you would get citizenship. And for many years, there was this rumor that it felt like really like real. Yeah, uh, obviously it's not, and it's not because we have seen the number of uh, deported veterans uh, increase, like like we saw under uh, Trump, for example. The thing though is that within DACA, the program, it doesn't exist that idea of um, if you're enrolling military, you can stay. That's that's not the case. What happened though is that when Dream Act was introduced many many times during like for a decade, they always had that option as to whether you go to college or you go to in, into the military. And this is why so, this, this bill is so important to discuss, because there's always dangling this option of go fight and maybe die for this country, mm-hmm. and maybe we'll give you papers. What do you mean, Daka? What do you mean it had an option of go to college or join the military? What does that mean? Yeah, so on the Dream, Dream Act, that never happened, right? Yeah, yeah okay. This is as, as many other <laughs> bills in, in immigration reform that have never become law. It, it was basically uh, the only options um, where you, if you're enrolling in college or you go to the military, then you get into the path to legal permanent residency. So those were the options, and that's why we fought so hard against DreamAct, because most people will not be able to afford college, therefore will end up being in the military. Right. And that's the problem with this bill itself, is that they're pretty much telling poor low-income immigrants, well... Go to the military and maybe we can give you some some papers. And that's always right. the case in the problem with this kind of um, throwing some some people under the bus. You know, it's it's putting uh, communities against each other because this is not only being right now in Congress in regards to legalizing certain communities. There's another one that precisely is about young people arriving into the country, but not legalizing them, but not their parents. There's another one of farm workers that I really I would like to know if really farm workers for for that bill because it's mainly the agricultural industry. So there's always these these efforts to um, ensure that certain communities um, get more worth than others, but they're also used uh, in whatever economic or political sense is necessary for the for the government and for the economy, for the com- the corporations at the moment. And for this bill, I mean, the good thing that I see about this bill is that. People that were deported and were veterans could actually apply to come back. Mm-hmm. But beyond that, is is is. I mean, it, I'm afraid that a lot of young people, if this bill comes through, uh, would actually end up being forced to join the military in order to get papers. Yeah, yeah. It seems like a really, uh, it's a dark thing to incentivize uh, for people, considering you, you know you're you're signing up to potentially lose your life uh, for something that may not happen, right? Because it's not it's never a guarantee. It's always, sure, we'll make it a little bit easier. But all of that, yeah. 
Um, I also wanted to talk about these uh, continuing efforts by the Biden administration to fight courts saying Title 42 cannot be enforced anymore at the border. This was a pandemic era, Trump era rule that allowed the United States to expel more people at the border uh, than it otherwise would be allowed to, citing health concerns. This was something that uh, Joe Biden Joe Biden campaigned uh, absolutely day in and day out on Donald Trump's cruel immigration policies and how they were wrong and we need to be welcoming, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but Biden doesn't seem to really want to change a lot of them. And it has been fighting to keep Title 42 uh, for the last year. A few weeks ago, a judge blocked the continued implementation of the public health regulation saying you can't justify this anymore, right? We are all decided in the United States that pandemic's over. We have vaccines. You can't use this CDC regulation to expel people who are seeking asylum. And the Biden administration at that time asked for five weeks to prepare. Now, about four weeks into that preparation process, they have announced their intention to appeal the ruling. The White House says that it is only fighting to maintain the authority of the CDC to impose such regulations, which, you know, I, I have lawyer friends who say, yeah, they have to do that. They're fighting to maintain their their regulatory authority. Um, the problem I have is that the Biden administration has also consistently said it intends to end these expulsions. And in that it has fallen short. Uh, and so I, I want you to talk to us about, you know, uh, why the Biden administration is fighting so hard for this policy and whether we should believe that, you know, even if they are able to keep this authority, don't worry, they're not going to use that authority to expel asylum seekers at the border. Well, I think we, we had this conversation uh, before. Yes, we have. Precisely right. Saying, is this going to happen? And my prediction was like, I don't think so. <laughs> because we we know now that the Biden administration is really not different than the than the Trump administration. I mean, your guest, your prior guest was talking about that. At least Trump, we knew who, who he was, right? Um, and in this sense, yes, we have gotten a lot of promises. Um, let me go back a little to those bills that we were discussing before. All of them in some way or fashion, include that the the, board, the southern border should continue being militarized. Yeah. And that com- it's part of, of this conversation as well. Because if, if there's something that is a common ground between Republicans and Democrats, is that they always want to use immigration for many different purposes, and not none of them in benefit of our communities. And the fact that Title 42 continue being used as a, as a, really as a weapon against uh, asylum seekers is, is the best way for the administration to control uh, whatever they want to do without any congressional interjection, without any executive orders, because this one is already in place, right, mm-hmm. by, by the previous administration. Mm-hmm. And also, it gives them the chance to look good in, during, the, during elections. They're still tough on immigration. Yeah. Because there's all this rhetoric about, oh, my God, you open the, the border and all, you know, these millions of people are going to come into our, our country, yeah. which is, is not true. I mean, yes, a lot of people are waiting because they've been waiting there purposely. This was manufactured by the previous administration to actually have so many people wait with the help of the Mexican government. And so for, for the Biden administration, this is going to be something that they want to keep. Because, again, it gives them this, this idea that we, we are tough on immigration, we're tough on the border, we're not going to let people in uh, for those, quote-unquote, centralist Democrats vote for us. And at the same time, they come around and tell us, oh, well, you know, I, I, I'm going to give you a bill. 
I'm going to give you maybe some benefits in, administ- in some administrative processes. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to expedite some, some administrative processes. And at the same time, right now, we have the biggest number of people under deportation proceedings ever, ever, uh, that we have never seen before. I mean, we're talking about over almost 350,000 people just being monitored um, in, in digital surveillance that we will talk about later. Yes. But uh, that is besides the 30,000 people that are right now in, in detention. And let me just add, uh, the Biden administration says that they want to keep the CDC uh, uh, power, right, to, to mandate this kind of efforts. Yet, Immigration Customs Enforcement has to stop uh, reporting how many people with COVID are um, in detention centers since October of 20, uh, 23rd of this year. And so, you know, they can just, just have their cake and eat it, too. They just want to use CDC when it's convenient to them, but when it, they should, they don't. Yeah, no, and they want to just say, they want to, I mean, ultimately, I feel like the message of, of uh, this administration and a lot of Democratic administrations to immigrants is, we're not going to use such nasty language when we talk about you. But in terms of policy, uh, you know, it, it, not a lot of difference. The other thing I was just realizing uh, when you're talking about regulatory power in the CDC. I'm trying to remember if the Biden administration thought fought really hard to maintain the power of the CDC to uh, issue that eviction moratorium. Do you remember that, John? I remember the eviction moratorium and there was a, you know, there, there was a fight over whether the CDC had the. I don't. I see they took it to the Supreme Court. All right. So they're consistent there. At least, because I was going to say, if, if they didn't bother to fight that, yes. they want to keep this regulatory. Asset. Right. All right. Well, good. We found some consistency. I also am going to take the opportunity with this next question to ask if the Biden administration should get some credit for a shift in immigration policy, because CBS News is reporting that uh, we hit this year a 14 year high in the number of immigrants becoming U.S. citizens. Nearly a million people became naturalized citizens. It's the third highest number in U.S. recorded history. And CBS notes that this came a year after Joe Biden directed federal agencies to promote naturalizations by eliminating bureaucratic barriers in the citizenship process, speeding up case adjudications and developing a government wide strategy to encourage eligible immigrants to become citizens. And so, you know, is this a, you know, sort of notable empirical thing that we can point to to say, hey, look, at least in, in one aspect of uh, the lives of immigrants, the Biden administration has done something positive? Uh, yes, yes, but very minimal. Like I was saying, for, on one hand, they're, they're stopping asylum seekers. On the other hand, they're saying, oh, yeah, we want immigrants and we want them to be citizens. But I would actually give more, more credit to the Trump administration Whoa. because by, by, by them uh, putting so many barriers to, to immigration efforts, uh, such as uh, immigrants becoming citizens, that really made a lot of people angry. A lot of people that could at that moment become citizens and were afraid to do so, as soon as Trump left, they started the process to become hmm. citizens. And also, we should give a huge credit to the organizations on the ground that have worked for, uh, for these efforts for decades, yeah. that we have never really seen uh, any administration do as they should. Um, now, the, the, the efforts of the Biden administration to facilitate these processes is not a big deal because it's something they could have done already for many, many, many months before uh, they announced it. And also, um, let's remember, every, every aspect of immigration uh, that requires paperwork, you have to pay for it. And the last time I checked, 
the fees for becoming a citizen had increased. So, it's, I mean, if they really want to facilitate this, they would actually decrease the fees, uh, not only facilitating the, the uh, administrative paperwork that requires. Yeah. But uh, definitely, let me tell you, I know that as soon as Trump left, so many legal permanent residents that were eligible began their processes to become citizens because they, they didn't want to be caught as they felt they were under the, the Trump administration. Yeah. Yep. That makes so much sense. Uh, finally, let's let's talk about surveillance. Uh, I want to talk about this report issued yesterday in Washington state that outlines how widespread digital surveillance can undermine state commitments to, for example, being a sanctuary for immigrants or to upholding commitments to reproductive rights. Uh, talk to us about this report out of Washington State University, uh, what it uncovered and, and the kind of, uh, you know, the ways this surveillance is undermining these commitments in states. Yeah, precisely because at federal level, we are not finding absolutely any solutions under this administration or previous administrations. Many, many groups have worked at state level to create protections for our immigrant communities. And here in Washington, we have a couple of different laws that protect us. One of them uh, is to stop uh, federal, uh, I'm sorry, local uh, police, uh, police departments to collaborate with federal enforcement such as ICE without a, a real warrant. Yet uh, what this report found from the Center for Human Rights is that these, uh, they're called autom automated license plate readers. So mm -hmm. you'll see, you, you know, the, you see a bunch of cameras on the street, but you will also probably find those readers that check your, your speed. And I always thought, oh, my God, this is great because it reminds me to slow down. Well, actually, they also read your plates, your license plates. Mm -hmm. So there's all these readers across everywhere, you know, <laughs> anywhere yeah. in the country right now. Um, that are reading your license plates and they're keeping track of that and they're gathering that data. And most of that data, I mean, it could be done by private people, by private groups, you know, like Neighborhood Watch, but it's also done by, by uh, local police departments. And here in Washington, this report found that there's no standard about how they, they share this data. As a matter of fact, a lot of local police departments said that they, they don't even gather it. Um, there was no proof of that. Others said, well, we gathered, but we deleted immediately if it's not necessary. And others wouldn't tell us absolutely anything based on what I read on the on the report. Mm -hmm. And this doesn't match our state sanctuary policy that says, no, you should not be sharing information because they actually are doing it. They're sharing these local police departments, the sheriff's departments are sharing these data with, with ICE. And this is really critical right now because... Um, Washington State, we have really strong laws to protect reproductive uh, rights mm -hmm. and, and access to reproductive health. But there's like neighboring states such as Idaho and people that come from as far as uh, Texas to get reproductive health here mm -hmm. in Washington. And, and because these license plate readers could be implemented by anyone and really the data access by anyone, we think about immigrants, especially undocumented immigrants that need to have access to reproductive health. They have to travel. And let me remind uh, your audience, most states in Washington, in, in, in the country, except Washington State, is don't, do not provide la, la driver's licenses to people without social security numbers. Mm -hmm. And so it's already a risk for people sometimes to drive and to drive out of state. And if you are, are fleeing literally a state where you're not permitted to access reproductive health, if you're undocumented, and you end up in our state and, and your license plates are being read by these devices and shared with other states, 
that already triggers not only a possible charge against you in your state, but also it could trigger uh, a deportation proceeding because that will be the excuse that ICE will use against you to uh, put you in deportation proceedings and possibly in detention. Yeah, I mean, it just seems to demonstrate that there are so many ways that our data is being collected and harvested mm-hmm. that we are not aware of. It. And there's so little regulation about what, what's supposed to happen to that data, uh, who is allowed to hold on to it, who isn't, who's allowed to access it. And again, I was thinking, even if you have, I mean, I know this this law in Texas did not end up being able to be put into practice, but if you end up with a sort of law where it, it becomes a crime to help somebody access an abortion, right? And you're identified by your license plate as driving someone to a clinic. You know, yeah, that's a that's another level of invasion, another level of, um, uh, you know, cur- curtailing of this kind of activity that, again, some states want to protect and others mm-hmm. are determined to stamp out. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, the, the point is and, and we know that Idaho, for example, is working right now on a very restrictive reproductive health access law um, as we speak. And so uh, just the fact that. We are being monitored, we're being watched, and we have no idea who's doing it and what they're doing with that information. That's already scary. That should not happen. Yeah. I, I always share my experience that when I was put on deportation proceedings because of my work under the Trump administration, it turns out that we found through FOIA access that my data was bought by, uh, by ICE through a private company, and they, they have like dozens of pages on me. They yeah. literally found all the addresses where I lived. How did they find that? Well, because insurance companies, uh, car insurance companies, they sell your data. These data that these uh, automatic license plate readers are gathering, it's also for for, uh, for sale. So we need re- regulation. We need a very good policy that protects our data from not also not only being gathered without our permission, but being shared and being sold. And that's what is so scary about this, because we're still fighting a lot on the on the front of reproductive rights. But that's why it's so important on the immigrant justice uh, front to realize that while we sometimes get some wins, you know, like get people to become citizens, like the Berks Detention Center that is shutting down next January, we still have a lot of these uh, data being shared and being bought by, in this case, ICE or, or just access for free. Um, by ICE, and that's why we have over 300,000 people, almost 350,000 people in digital surveillance right now, because they're being put in deportation proceedings. It's a great business, not only for ICE, but really it's a great business for all these companies that are making billions of dollars of of our data. Yeah, and really something that uh, we need to get a hold of sooner rather than later. That was Maru Mora Vialpando. She's an immigrant activist. She's a community organizer. She's founder of La Resistencia. Maru, always great to talk to you. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. We've only got a couple minutes left. Do you got any headlines for I, me, John? I, I have... do, actually. All right. Uh, Yahoo News and YouGov just came out with a poll in the last few minutes showing for the very first time that uh, if the election were held today, Ron DeSantis would defeat Donald Trump uh, 49 to 41. Who did they poll? They polled. Let me look here how many it was. Or like, is it just any any just, voters? Is just it all Republicans? Republicans? Okay, just Republicans, uh, and and they're not telling us what the sample. Uh, here it is. They're going to tell us what the sample size is here. If I can get this, uh, yeah, it's one thousand six hundred and thirty-five registered Republicans. They pulled them between December first and December fifth, and uh, their conclusion is that that Trump is uh, is I not mean, doing well. It's been a bad 
couple weeks for Donald yeah. Trump. Yeah, so it has. It's not maybe not too surprising. Uh, also not too surprising. Hey, uh, turns out uh, Dan Snyder. Scumbag. Yeah, scumbag, according House, to the House of Representatives. House, yeah, over, Committee on Oversight and Reform, they issued a report on uh, their investigation into the commander's workplace culture. And what do you know? Still bad. <laughs> yep. And also they are accusing Snyder of trying to silence his accusers by uh, harassing them, trying to pay them hush money, uh, getting private investigators to dig up dirt on them. And then that Snyder lied to Congress about what he was doing in his deposition. Which is a felony. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. We're we're, we're in the beginning. I am. Yeah. This is the beginning of the end of Dan Snyder. Fine with it. In football. uh, I mean. Don't don't tease me, John. (laughs) I would be great. I mean, you know, maybe you should be a. We should be tried for lying to Congress. I mean, you know, it seems yeah. to be random who gets to do that and who doesn't. But yeah, if he could be yeah. one who doesn't, that's fine. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. Um, he's being sued by Carl Racine, D.C. Yes. Uh, Attorney General for which we should not underestimate. Yeah, I forget what exactly the nat- nature of that suit is. It's not about the workplace culture. I think it's about him. It's about him like defrauding the NFL or something, deceiving the NFL by lying to them about what he was doing. I forget the exact nature of it. Yeah. My God. What else we got here going on? I have. Oh, I have a couple. Well, we see um, Ann Sekoulis got a suspended sentence there. Yeah. You know, she is the woman. That was just heartbreaking. She was the woman who uh, killed British teenager Harry Dunn. She hit him with her car. She was driving on the wrong side of the road. Did she take off or not? Yeah, she she took off. and. And then when they went to uh, arrest her, or at least to question her, they realized that not only did she leave the scene of the accident, she had left the UK mm. and flew back to the United States. I was never clear if she'd actually left the scene of the accident or not, which yeah, is pretty disgusting. just awful. So she got a she got an eight month suspended sentence. It's suspended for twelve months. So if she doesn't return to the UK in the next twelve months and commit another crime, then she gets off scot free. Yeah, just awful. It, it is. Uh, we have a helpful story in Vice on um, all the lawsuits against FTX at the moment. Four civil lawsuits filed wow. against Bankman Freed. Uh, and then there are probes by the DOJ, the U.S. Attorney's Office in Manhattan, also in California, also in the Bahamas, also this SEC Exchange Commission. Uh, there's lots of probes. And in the meantime, we have Senator Elizabeth Warren, uh, as Politico right. reports, pressing regulators to probe bank ties to crypto, which actually they, of course, should. Right? Absolutely. Uh, we were honestly, maybe we should look back and say thank you to FTX, because it, it felt like really we were on the brink of uh, quite a lot of full, full scale yes. investment by traditional financial institutions that hold the wealth of a lot of regular people. Yes. Um, it full scale investment into stuff like FTX and other crypto exchanges. I mean, of course, it's it, that investment is already happening. This sort of infection is already spreading, yes. but it hasn't totally taken over. And so, you know, if Liz Warren wants to come out and say, you guys need to f- figure out how close you are. How yep. exposed you are to the same kind of collapses happening all over the place, and uh, you know, have some have some guidelines. Uh, I'm fine with that. I have one other thing. I know we have less than a minute left. Oh, yeah. Laura Loomer, the far far right wing now perennial candidate for Congress, 
um, is in a feud with Marjorie Taylor Greene, who she's now calling Marjorie Trader Greene. Oh, my God. What's it about? It's because Marjorie Taylor Greene endorsed Kevin McCarthy for speaker. Love and it. so Laura Loomer says that either she'll run against Marjorie Taylor Greene or she'll find somebody who will. I, I don't like her chances. <laughs> I don't either. We Considering get she's here. gotten 20% in the last two races. Hey, thanks for listening. John Kiriakou and I will talk to you tomorrow. Bye.